Well, good morning. Good morning. My name's Matt. If I have not met you before, I'd love to meet you. I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor. And as Alnado mentioned, I love this church as well. It's a great church to be a part of. Hey, we're going to be, uh, as Alnado has already mentioned, finish off our series on gospel confidence. We're starting in Romans 1 this morning, Romans 1, 16. So if you want to go there and you've got a Bible, we're going to hit Romans 1 first. We're going to head to Daniel 3 uh, at the end. So maybe you want to put a, put a finger or your connect card in Daniel chapter 3. But if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. All the verses will be on the screen behind me. One quick thing before we get into the Word is that um, one of the things that we're uh, often talking about here at Anchor is about doing everyday life with gospel intentionality. We're about trying to create opportunities in life to connect with people and to connect them with Jesus. Uh, there's a, a number of people uh, who are part of the Anchor family who are in a band called We the Outpost and are holding a, a, an event. Uh, a launch of a, a new bunch of songs that they've written at the Sly Fox in Newtown on April 10th. So uh, if you haven't heard about that, it's on Facebook, check it out. It's a great opportunity to bring a friend who doesn't know Jesus, help them meet some people from your gospel community and enjoy some great music. So 10th of April at the Sly Fox, a uh, good opportunity for some missional intentionality. Let me pray for us as we get into the Word. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you're a God who has decided that your life-transforming message would be communicated by people. Such weak vessels we are, Father. But we thank you this morning that your gospel message is powerful to save. And so, Father, as we look at your word this morning, would you fill us with confidence, fill us with faith and trust that the gospel can transform lives and that the gospel can and has transformed our own hearts and lives and that we desperately need the gospel to do that every single day. We ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Well, we've uh, been walking our way through this little mini-series called Gospel Confidence over the last few weeks. And the first week, we looked at some promises that God has made us, some concrete promises that we can cling to that give us confidence. The first promise is that Jesus says, I will build my church. Second promise is that Jesus says that the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. Third promise is that Jesus promises that that mission is resourced by the power of the Spirit. And the fourth promise is that the Gentiles will listen. What wonderful promises that fill us with gospel confidence. Last week we saw that God can and has in history and in Scripture radically transformed whole cities. We saw that our vision for seeing a city transformed is not beyond the ability and power of God to do. This morning what I look, want to look at is what is actually going to make that happen? Where does our confidence lie in seeing radical transformation across our city? And I want to suggest to you that that confidence comes in the power of the gospel. So we're going to look at Romans 1.16. And if you've grown up in church, in kids' church, in youth ministry, then chances are somewhere along the line, this is a verse that you will have memorized, Romans 1.16. Right, but I hope that it's not something that is just so familiar 
that doesn't really mean anything to you. So let's have a look. Romans 1.16. This is what it says. This is Paul speaking. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is something there that outweighs Paul's temptation to be ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel. What is it? It's what the gospel achieves, salvation for everyone who believes. Paul has a deep conviction about the gospel that overrides any sense of shame. You know, the root of shame or embarrassment is actually fear. Fear of what people might think. Fear of their opinions. Fear of what their words might say of us. That's where shame and embarrassment come from. And the gospel releases us from that. It releases us. Because we do not need to be ashamed or embarrassed about what people would think because we know what our God thinks of us. And in his, his eyes, we are righteous. You remember what Paul reminds timid Timothy of? Timothy, who was afraid, embarrassed, and ashamed of the gospel. What does Paul remind him of? In 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, it says this, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That is, don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And what is this gospel? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, his own grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds Timothy of both the gospel and his gospel identity. You see how fear and shame are dealt with there? You have the Spirit of God inside you and He has not given you a spirit of fear, so there, no, there ought not to be any fear. And remember the gospel. Do not be ashamed of this gospel. Do not be ashamed of me, His prisoner, the Lord's prisoner, because this gospel, God has called you to it. He's called you to suffer for it and this is the gospel that radically transforms people's lives. So Paul reminds Timothy of both his gospel identity and of the gospel itself. You know, if we're honest, there is a corner of our heart that there is fear and shame and embarrassment when it comes to talking about Jesus. And we need to remember that the gospel frees us from that. The gospel, in light of the gospel, fear and shame just dissolve, they disappear. And by the power of the Spirit, we ought to be able to say along with Paul, I'm not ashamed of this message. I'm not ashamed. What does Paul say in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, everyone. Who cares? God is for us. But you know what? It's not actually gospel identity that overrides this sense of shame for Paul here. It's actually gospel power. Go back to verse 16 Verse 16 again there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because or for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul is not ashamed because of what the gospel achieves. Now he personally has experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel. 
The gospel can profoundly, radically change a person from the inside out, free them from the power of sin, free them from the penalty of sin, and eventually free everyone from the presence of sin. It is the power of God for salvation. And you notice there, it's not a word uh, about telling us what we can do in our power. This isn't even a word about God's power. It says there the gospel itself is the power of God. The gospel is not a message telling people to lift themselves up. It is the power to lift people up. The gospel radically transforms people. The gospel saves. Why should we be ashamed of a message that can do that? Why should we be ashamed of a message that can take people from hell and redeem them and bring them into the kingdom of light? You know, the medical researcher who discovers the cure for leukemia or cancer or whatever, are they celebrated? Of course they are. Because they've discovered something that has profound effects on people's lives and potentially can save people from death, at least for a time. The gospel, the gospel can rescue people from the power of sin, from themselves, from the devil, from the world, from eternal punishment. The gospel can save people. It's it's a matter of perspective. Will we choose to believe what God says about the gospel? Or will we believe the culture? Our culture that says to us that the gospel is irrelevant, that the message of Jesus is archaic, that it is simply a myth. You shouldn't believe it. In fact, if you do, you're foolish. Will we believe that about the gospel? Or will we believe what God says in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is powerful to save? It is powerful to save. And you'll notice there, it's powerful to save everyone who believes. Everyone. There's no fine print there. You don't get to the end of verse 16 and see little asterisks and then look down the bottom of the page and and you notice another little asterisk that says, for those who are morally acceptable. It doesn't say that. This is for everyone who believes. Every single person. Me. You. Murderers. Like Paul. The gospel can save Paul. He was a man who was pursuing and murdering Christians for their faith and Jesus radically transformed his life, saved him, washed his sin away, redeemed him from the slavery and bondage of religion that he was trapped in. The gospel can save. It is powerful to save. What will save your colleague at work? What will bring conviction to your mom or your dad? What will melt the heart of your neighbor, your friend? It's the gospel. It's the simple message that Jesus died for their sins to free them and to rescue them and redeem them. Sometimes I think we just make it too hard for ourselves. We try and be too clever when we talk about Jesus or we try and be too creative and people don't really track with what we're saying or worse, we try and be sneaky, we do the bait and switch. Sometimes we just make it too hard for ourselves when we just need to tell people that Jesus died for their sins and trust that God would work. Do we believe 
Do we trust? Do we have confidence that the gospel has power to save? Or has Romans 1.16 just become one of those verses that we memorized back in youth ministry, but we've never really believed or lived out? Do we believe that the gospel is powerful to save? You know, I said a few weeks ago that it's my personal conviction that we will never speak of Jesus. We will never speak the gospel if we don't have confidence in the message. We will never do that. You know what the opposite of gospel shame is? It's gospel confidence. That's what Paul could say. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I have confidence in the gospel because it is the power of God to save. And we know this, or at least we ought to, because every single person who loves Jesus and has given their life to him is an example of the transforming power of the gospel. Are we not? I mean, I was a kid who moved to seven different primary schools in six years, didn't have a a friend for more than a year, was desperate for friends, and then Jesus showed me that he was the friend that I not only needed, but wanted. The gospel transformed many people in this church. The gospel transformed someone like Isaac, who lost a dad four or five years ago, and now God has adopted him into his family and said, I am your heavenly father. The gospel has transformed people who grew up in church families, understanding everything, being as close as you can to the Father without really pursuing His glory, has revealed to them their sin of self-righteousness and brought them to know Jesus. The gospel has taken people from broken, messed up families, adopted them into God's family. I mean, every single person in this church who loves Jesus is an example of the transforming power of the gospel. Do do we believe that or do we somehow think that we got here because we're good enough? The gospel is powerful to save. You know when a, a church has that conviction? Imagine that. Imagine a church with a deep conviction that the gospel is powerful to save. I think the reason that we so often hesitate, the reason that we're so often afraid is that truly in our hearts, what we're believing is not that the gospel is powerful to save, but that it's up to us. That if I can just nail this presentation, if I can get all the words right, if I can answer their questions really well and and corner them logically. I love what Hudson Taylor said, missionary to China, formed the Inland China Mission, responsible for 800 missionaries to China. And and he said this. I think we've got a quote on the screen. Many Christians estimate difficulty in light of their own resources. And thus they attempt very little and they always fail. All giants, that is all giants of the faith, have been weak men and women who did great things for God because they reckoned on His power and presence to be with them. And that's what we need as a church, to realize it's not about us. We have no power in and of ourselves, but the gospel does. God has power to transform. The Spirit regenerates hearts. Our city will only come to know Jesus when we get that. And if we believe that, then we will attempt great things for God. We will step out in faith. We will take risks. We will be bold and proclaim Jesus. 
Do we have confidence in the transforming power of the gospel? But what I want to do now is just pause and speak to the elephant in the room. Because my guess is that for many of you, as I've been preaching over the last couple of weeks, and have you been, as you've been sitting in gospel communities and chatting this stuff through, there's a, there's a thought that's going through your head that goes something like this. Yeah, but what if nothing happens? What if nothing happens? Is there any room for uncertainty in gospel confidence? And to answer that question, I want to take us to a story of three men in exile in Daniel chapter 3. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So let's go. Daniel chapter 3. If you've got a Bible marked there, you can go there. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who have just come in and dominated Israel and taken Israel into exile. And this is what it says. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Nebuchadnezzar built a 27-meter-high golden statue and said that at any point when music was played, the harp, the lyre, the banjo, the guitar, whatever it is, everyone is to bow down and worship the golden statue. Is it true? Verse 15, Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this challenge between himself and the God of the Bible. He should have known the track record doesn't go well when that happens. But you see what he says there in verse 15? What God will rescue you from my hand? He's confident in his own power and ability, his own rule and authority and sovereignty. And then check out their response, their confident response. Verse 17, our God is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your hand. Talk about being prepared to do whatever it takes to see the name of God honored, right? But what is the source of their certainty? I used to think there was like a promise that God had made to these three men that didn't necessarily get recorded in Daniel chapter 3 and that was the source of their hidden confidence that wasn't really there. But I, I don't actually think that's what's happening here. I think their source of confidence lies in something else. So where is it? What, why can they speak so confidently to the king about what God will do? There are two sources of confidence. The first is this. This is the first time since the Tower of Babel, all the way back in Genesis, that the peoples of every, the peoples, the nations, and the languages are all together. It's the same uh, group of words that are used back in Babel that God scatters. And this is the first time that that group of people are back together. 
And back in Daniel chapter 3, verse 3, it says this. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image. Now we know that it is God who is to be worshipped by the peoples, nations, and languages. We know that God is a God who is jealous for his own glory, that people would treat his name rightly. And so we know that God will act to see that his name is glorified. And so these three men believe the promises of God that have been revealed in the prophets. The second promise that they cling to is this. Remember, they've been dragged into exile. They've been dragged away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from their worship of God. And they've been listening to the prophets who have been busy prophesying. Prophets like Jeremiah, prophets like Habakkuk, prophets like Isaiah who have been saying that God will always have a remnant. God will always have his people no matter where they've been scattered across the globe. That God will deliver his people. That he will bring them back to the promised land, back into his presence, back into his worship. And so... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know these promises. They've been listening to the word of God and they are clinging to these promises and waiting for the time when God would do that. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that seems like a lot of pressure given the fact that they're about to die for not worshipping a golden statue. I mean, what, what would you do in that situation? Would you just bow down to a chunk of gold that you knew was just metal and had no power and live? Or would you refuse and die? I remember um, a while ago just scrolling through my Facebook feed and I saw this video that uh, one of the mums of our youth group kids had posted on her Facebook page. And it was titled, Islamic Militants Behead Christian. And this is well before the time of ISIS where we've almost been desensitized to this stuff. And I was like, gee, that seems a bit brutal. So I clicked on it and I watched the video. And then there was this, uh, this Muslim man and he was saying, this man is a Christian. And if he confesses the Shahada, we will let him live. But if not, we will kill him. And the man confessed it. And he said, because he has confessed, we will shoot him. But because he's a Christian, we'll cut his head off. And then they cut his head off. And you could see the whole video. I, I Honestly, I nearly vomited on my computer. And then I flagged it and emailed the mum and said, this is not appropriate for kids to be seeing. Please take this down. That's the kind of person persecution that these three men face. They're about to be walked into a burning, fiery furnace and be burnt alive because they refuse to bow to a golden statue. And in the face of that persecution... They have certainty. Did you see what they said in verse 17? Our God is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from you. Who says that? Who says that? They're about to die. Our God will deliver us from your hand. I want you to imagine for a second the time between uttering those words, those words just left their lips. And then the guards get them and they begin to walk them towards the furnace. And they get close. And they're a few meters away and they can feel the heat of the furnace on their faces. 
Would any doubt come into your mind at that point? You think, God, any second now, any second, God, come through. What do you think they were expecting at that moment? When they said, our God will deliver us, what were they expecting? Were they expecting the fire just to miraculously go out? Were they expecting Nebuchadnezzar to die, fall, fall dead on the spot? What? Do you think they had any category in their head for being put into the furnace and not burnt, not being burnt alive? I mean, do you think that? I can imagine in that moment there would have been opportunity for doubt and for that confidence to dissolve very quickly. And say, whoa, whoa, okay, 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 we'll, we'll bow, we'll bow. They're certain. And they're certain all the way to the flames. And then God acts. Have a look at verse 19. I want to read a fairly big chunk of this story so we pick up the flow of the story. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound with their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and yielded their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation or language that speaks against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Wow. You know, maybe sometimes... And this is just a maybe. Maybe sometimes God puts us in the fire before he will make his name great. But God does hear exactly what is true to his characters, is he not? What happens? All of the peoples, the nations, and the languages are called to worship God and he makes his name great. That's exactly the two promises that these three men clung to. God does it. He acts in accordance with his promises. But 
there is this curious little verse in that account that has always troubled me. I don't know if you picked it up as I read it. I tried to skim over it quickly so it wouldn't be obvious, but it's there in verse 18. Go, go back to verse 17 with me for a sec. These are the confident words as they speak to Nebuchadnezzar. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able, he will deliver us from your hands, O God, but if not, hang on, but? What, what happened to the confidence? Where did it go? But what? How can you be so certain God will deliver us and then say, but if he doesn't? There is a peculiar mix here of both certainty and confidence and uncertainty. So where does this uncertainty come from? Well, I think it comes from this. God hasn't actually promised that he will spare them from the fire. I don't think there is a, a hidden promise that we don't read about in this account. What God has promised is what he's done, that he will deliver his people, that his name will be worshipped amongst all the nations, tribes, and languages of the earth. And so these men cling to these big picture promises, but God has actually been silent on their specific circumstance. And so there is this mix of certainty and confidence about what God is going to do and uncertainty about what he might do right now. And I reckon God loves that. I reckon God loves it when his people take risks and have faith and cling to his promises despite everything looking against the odds. That we would say, despite the fact that I've got no idea what God is going to do in this city, no idea what God is going to do with the people on my five. No idea what God is going to do with my neighbor and my colleague. I'm still going to take a risk. I'm still going to preach Christ. God loves that. Oh, for a church that trusts the promises of God, that says of Romans 1.16, I believe that. I believe that the gospel is powerful to save. You know, one of the, one of the things, the, the, the reason behind doing gospel confidence is that we would kind of get anchor and shake you up like a Coke can so that we would be ready to burst with gospel confidence. That's the point of gospel confidence. And I certainly don't want to let the fizz settle and subside. But I know that for many, there is a, a sense of uncertainty about this. What if nothing happens? What if God doesn't choose to save any of the five on my list? What then? How, how do we resolve that tension of being confident in the promises of God and yet uncertain about our circumstance? And I, I think we've partly resolved that tension a few weeks ago when we said we are not always the ones that get to reap. You know, we would sow and someone else waters. God brings the growth and then maybe someone else reaps. And so that partly solves the tension is that we don't have to see the completion of the whole process. We just sow the seed and trust that God would work. But I think the other way we resolve this tension is to do exactly what these three men have done. In the gap between the promise of God and the specific circumstance, we have faith. We trust. Remember the promises of God? I will build my church. I will build my church. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. The Spirit does empower us for mission. 
and people will respond. Those are the promises of God. We've seen that God can and has transformed whole cities, that He is able. Do we know God's exact plan for person number one or two or five on our list? We, we don't. But does that mean that we lose heart? Does that mean we lose expectancy? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we do exactly what these three men did. Have faith, trust, and take a risk. If God will not do this, then what? If not, then what? I mean, what, what was the if not for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If God will not do this, then we still will not bow down and worship these gods. What's our if not? If, if God doesn't do this, then I'm just going to be disobedient to the Great Commission. If God doesn't do this, do I need another microphone? If, if God doesn't... Good. All right. If God doesn't do this, then what? I will be disobedient to the Great Commission. I will hoard the gospel to myself. If, if God doesn't do this, then what? I will still take that step of faith, take a risk, and proclaim Jesus boldly in this city. Even if it means that I never see any of my five come to faith. Because what's the alternative, right? I will still preach Christ with expectation, with faith, with confidence that God will work. See, I think what we do is we believe and cling to the big, grand, big picture promises of God. We hold on to them and we allow that to drive our action rather than allowing our doubt and our disappointments to drive our actions. But you know what's not okay? It's not okay for us to doubt those promises that God has made. We may not know with certainty here, but we certainly know with certainty what God has said. And so we step forward in faith and we take a risk. I love what Pastor Tim Chaddock said to us in that beautiful moment when he shared and encouraged Anchor as we were planning to plant this church. He said, remember, take risks, results may vary. Take risks, results may vary. I love that. And what that is, is juggling both confidence in God's big picture promises and uncertainty about the specifics. Take risks, results may vary. But you know what's cool is that the power to rescue three men from the burning fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar is but a shadow, but a shadow of the power that God has to rescue people from the fires of hell. And he does that by sending his one and only son who would come and walk into the furnace and take the punishment upon himself that we would never have to experience that. That we would never have to experience the father's separation, the father's disapproval, that he would take literally hell upon himself for us, to free us, to redeem us, to reconcile us. That's the gospel. And that message is powerful to save. We believe that. So friends, if you're here this morning and you have never trusted Jesus to deal with your sin, 
then this morning we would encourage you to do that. Maybe you've been here at Anchor for months and you've been listening and you've been thinking and you feel the Spirit of God convicting you and pressing on your heart, then maybe today is the day that you take the hand of Jesus and say, forgive me, take my sin. I have faith in you. The gospel is the power for salvation. I mentioned earlier that it's powerful. It removes the power of sin. It removes the penalty of sin. And in the age to come, it will remove the presence of sin. And we live in that time where we wrestle with being sinful people who need the gospel every single day because the presence of sin is still here. And we don't continue this Christian journey, our walk in faith, believing that Jesus rescued us and then every step we go is on our own strength and effort. No, we need the power of the gospel today as much as we did when Jesus first rescued us. The power of the gospel is powerful to save now in our lives today. There are some speeches in history that have radically changed the world. Speeches from powerful people, from influential people. One of my favorites happens to be a speech that comes from my homeland, from South Africa, given by uh, the late Nelson Mandela. In the days or week even following his release from prison, where he'd spent decades unfairly imprisoned, for speaking against what was a racist government policy, Nelson Mandela stood before the nation and said these words, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. And you look at that man, you look at his life, you look at his words, and not just the words that he spoke in the days after being released from prison, but the words that he spoke of reconciliation across that nation. And he radically changed a whole country. And let's be honest, South Africa's still got a fair way to go. But he changed a country with what? His words and his life. Friends, you have the most powerful words ever on your lips. The gospel that can not only transform people's now, but their forever. And the question is, church, will we speak it? Will we preach the gospel? Will we speak of Jesus with boldness and faith and confidence and expectation? Because that's what this city desperately, desperately needs. We're going to celebrate this gospel now in both song and symbol. We're going to worship our God as the band comes up and leads us. But either side of me is a, uh, a station with some bread and some grape juice. And they represent two symbols. The bread represents the body of Jesus and the grape juice represents his blood, both which were broken and shed for our forgiveness, to wash away our sin. And so this meal is a reminder and a celebration of the gospel. And so we encourage you this morning to search your hearts, do business with God and come forward and remember and celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Let me pray. 
Father God, we rejoice this morning in the gospel. We thank you that you have rescued us. Jesus, thank you that you went into the burning, fiery furnace, that you took the fires of hell on our behalf, that we would not have to experience the Father's wrath, the Father turning his face away, that you would experience that on our behalf, that you would wash us clean, make us whiter than snow. And Father, this morning we want to believe that this gospel that has transformed us, that does transform us every day, can do the same in this city. We pray, Father, that you would help us to believe, to have faith, to have confidence, to cling to your promises. And in the uncertainty of the specifics, to take a risk, to step out in faith, to preach Jesus boldly, and to do that for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen.